In this lesson of our audio course on Lean UX, we look at prototyping, its potential, where to start, and why it's an essential tool in digital design. This course is free thanks to the support of Balsamic. Hello and welcome to this audio course on Lean UX. This course is hosted by myself, Paul Boag, and joining me as always is Marcus Lillington. Hello, Marcus. Morning, Paul. Bright and early. How many goes was that? <laughs> Excuse me. I, I'm a professional. One take Boag. Nobody I needs to know any difference. Good good point, good point. Yeah, you, you are mostly one take Boag, so I'll give you that. I've also noticed that you're getting up early lately. I see you logging on to the Slack channel at like times like 8am. That's never happened in your whole life. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm still sitting in bed. Oh, I'm, cool. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not an early bird by any stretch of the imagination. I hadn't well, thought of that. Put it like this. Last night I was up faffing around at 5am. Um, but that wasn't early. That was late. I was, uh, yeah, it, I, yes. I can't physically do that. I mean, I think my absolute latest is about one thirty now. And that's it. I'm just like going, well, that's it. Night, night, everyone. I'm gone. And normally yeah, it's 10, 10 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be, to be fair, I had gone to sleep and woken up and I, I oh, have. That, okay. That's yeah. different. I have, yes. I have periodic sleep patterns. You know, I, I sleep for a little bit, you know, <laughs> do some stuff, sleep for a bit more. It's all very random. On a, on a sort of slightly serious but, but attached kind of um I, I was talking to somebody about this the, the other day and about this idea of we get too much light in our eyes too much screen time oh like yeah that kind of thing. absolutely I mean, do, do you do anything about that or do you just go hey i'm gonna burn my eyeballs out i don't know um no i don't <laughs> got through that one at you didn't i yeah no i i do i do nothing um, I just accept that that I will die an early death. Really? Well, I, well, I tried to move, go over to even going to dark mode was bad enough for me, but changing it so that it gets you know like you have nighttime mode, don't you, on your iPhone? It's, it's, oh, right. it's, I can't see it. It's just dark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Actually, I think I have that running. I can't remember. You set these things up and then get used to them and forget them. But yeah, I mean, everything goes get, orange. Yeah, I, I wouldn't notice. I'm so <laughs> blind these days that. Same. It doesn't make any difference, you know. It's all it's all impossible. Um, uh, you could get like blue light glasses and all kinds of stuff, can't you? Really, but I've got that. I'm wearing them at the moment, but whether oh, they you? actually make any make any difference, oh, who I've, knows? I don't know. Blue what I, what I am what I am doing is that it, at night time, I I tend to abandon my phone much earlier than I used to, and I I spend a lot more time on my Kindle these days. Which oh, is Kindles, good. lovely things. Yes, fair enough. Well, yes, that's that's sensible. See, yeah, doing something sensible. Well, actually, that wasn't an intentional decision. That was <laughs> that was a client sent me a Kindle as a thank you out of the blue. So that's what got me into it. So there nice. you go. Anyway, we're supposed to be doing. This is going to be the longest podcast ever because I, know, you, I had to listen to through oh, to like it seemed like fifty. 60 minutes of I bored ooh, myself prototyping, prototyping, today prototyping. yeah I bored myself today I if I if I was listening you know if dear listener 
I would very much recommend skip on to Aaron Walters interview. Ignore my talk. I, I don't know what took over me today. So anyway, we're, we're, we're doing, as you, you know, we're doing this um, course on Lean UX. If you want to know more about the course, you can go to boag.world forward slash lean dash UX. Um, last lesson, we looked at wireframing. This lesson, we're kind of building on that, really, and looking more at prototyping. Um, you could argue prototyping encompasses wireframing. I don't know. I don't know whether it does or not, whether they're two different things. Who cares? Mm. Um, but apparently, extra detail on this particular subject. That's yeah, all. yeah. Apparently, <laughs> I care because I talk about it now for, for 30 minutes. So get yourself a drink. Give yourself a Valium, sit, <laughs> sit down, relax, chill out, um, and fall asleep to me talking about prototyping for the next 30 minutes. I'm sorry. So, prototyping. It's a crucial tool in the development of websites and other digital services. So in this lesson, I'm going to explore its potential and share some tips and techniques to get the most from it. Although popular, prototyping is often misunderstood. People fail to get the real value from it because they're approaching it in the wrong way. The result is that when deadlines are pressing and budgets are tight, prototyping is often one of the first things to get cut. Instead, organizations leap into production uh, or fall back on lengthy specification documents in the hope of shortcutting the process. But in the end, they achieve precisely the opposite. So in this comprehensive introduction to prototyping, I want to share with you 25 years experience of building prototypes. Wow, I'm old. I'm going to show you that prototypes have a lot of potential, probably more than you initially expect. So if that sounds good, then keep listening. Let's start by talking about exactly what a prototype is, because most of us have a vague idea of what we mean by a prototype. But how does that relate to your website or your mobile app or whatever it is that you're building? To my mind, a prototype is a proof of concept that can be used to validate an idea for a user interface. That might be as simple as a hand-drawn sketch or as elaborate as a fully interactive, fully designed experience. In between these two extremes, there are a variety of different approaches, approaches that each have their pros and cons serving different purposes. For example, you could argue that a design mock-up of a user interface is a type of prototype. It's highly designed, but it lacks in any interactivity. That means it's good for validating visuals, but poor for usability testing. Then, of course, there are wireframes that we were talking about in the last show. Wireframes are typically lower quality visually and so quicker to produce. They can also be tested for visual hierarchy with users and whether or not people know what to do on a page. But they offer little in terms of testing aesthetics. That said, wireframes can vary in design detail and they could be linked together to form limited navigation. It's also possible to build HTML prototypes. These are good for usability testing and visual hierarchy and navigation. And they also allow testing across multiple devices. The downside is they can be time consuming to create, especially as richer designs or interactivity are added. Finally, there are prototypes that mimic the user interface as much as possible. These aim to be prototypes that provide an accurate sense of the final experience for testing without having to write any of the underlying code or functionality. This type of prototyping is more time consuming, probably the most time consuming of all, but give the most accurate picture of what is being built. 
Now, you may be thinking that all this does sound very time-consuming and hard to justify, and that's not an unusual response, but the benefits of prototyping are huge. I don't see prototyping as just a tool to help design interfaces. I believe that like so many parts of design thinking, it can actually benefit all areas of the business. My Many ideas fail, not because they're flawed, but because people didn't get it. It can be hard to imagine a new product, service or feature. That is where traditional specification documents and business plans fail utterly. They don't excite people about the potential. They don't show what could be. When staff at Disney wanted to persuade executives to invest $1 billion in renovating their parks to support a better user experience, they turned to prototyping. Instead of writing a document that only appealed to the executives on a rational level, they built a prototype so management could feel what a better experience would be. When so many companies now differentiate on the quality um, and, and on their service, how something feels is incredibly important. A prototype enables you to experience that, and so it excites stakeholders about the possibilities. Prototypes are a great way of unifying people around a shared vision. But that also has another benefit. Another advantage of prototyping over documents like business plans and specifications is it reduces the chance of misunderstanding. A paper that describes what you're going to build requires people to imagine the final solution. And that needs a degree of interpretation on the part of the reader. A prototype, on the other hand, shows stakeholders what's going to be built. And that means everybody has the same picture of the end goal. It significantly reduces the need for people to fill in the gaps with their imagination. Many stakeholders struggle to imagine a final product or service. Not only does this lead to misunderstanding, it also leads to scope creep. The clarity that a prototype brings will reduce the amount of scope creep as much of that is born out of misinterpretation. But prototypes reduce scope creep in another way too. To understand why prototypes reduce scope creep, one must first understand why scope creep occurs. One of the main reasons is stakeholders struggle to think through the specifics of a service. It's not until they start seeing it that they realize what's missing or what should be different. By producing a visual representation of the product in the early days, it helps stakeholders to see what's wrong or what's missing while things can still be easily adjusted. But it's not just stakeholders who will be able to spot shortcomings in your solution. Users can too. One of the primary reasons to create a prototype is to have something to test, a tangible product you can put in front of users and they can try. By testing with users, it's possible to identify problems early when fixing them is still inexpensive. But testing a prototype can be more than just for identifying problems. In the early days of a project, we can make a lot of assumptions about what users want. Some companies will do market research, but just like stakeholders, users often struggle to picture what you're proposing building. By creating a prototype, users can try out the service that you're considering building, and that provides valuable feedback that can save you a lot of money. For example, you might be considering building a specific piece of functionality that it turns out users don't use when they try the prototype. Alternatively, you might have missed something that users consider essential that would be expensive to add if only thought of later. Testing a prototype allows you to validate your assumptions and makes you more confident that you're building the right thing. 
digital projects are very different to other types of projects. In traditional projects, upfront flat planning is crucial because the cost of changing direction once the project is underway is prohibitive. But when it comes to digital, pixels are cheap. It's easy to experiment and try different approaches until you find the perfect way forward. The cost is a lot more affordable when you're working on a prototype rather than final code. You can quickly test ideas and uh, improve them through iteration, combining them with an unprecedented level of data that you can gather on your prototypes. This allows you to quickly iterate towards a minimal viable product and even potentially beyond. All of the advantages we've outlined so far boil down to a single compelling argument. Prototypes save the business money. And that's ironic considering one of the biggest excuses for not prototyping is the cost. But in truth, you can't afford not to prototype. Just look at all the ways it can save you money. It can reduce time spent in meetings trying to agree on a direction. They avoid changes caused by misunderstanding between stakeholders. They limit scope creep and the associated cost of retrofitting new functionality. And they avoid building functionality that's just not required. But the cost of prototyping is not just financial. It costs people time too. Projects stall, you miss deadlines and opportunities are lost. The company wastes time because of its lack of clarity about what they're building. This time will ultimately cost the organization money and market share. Again, this is ironic because another of the arguments against prototyping is a lack of time. And once again, I would argue that you don't have time not to prototype. Resist the urge to rush into projects or resort to lengthy specification phases. Instead, start with a prototype. I guarantee that it will save you money and time in the long run. Now, there's no definitive answer to how to go about making a prototype. Any of the approaches that I've outlined so far are perfectly valid. But before you start building, it's worth asking yourself two questions. Question number one is how much time do you have for prototyping? Many dismiss prototyping as a luxury that only big projects can afford. But that is because most people are thinking of high fidelity prototypes rather than sketches on a piece of paper, like the wireframing we talked about last time. In truth, prototyping can fit any budget and any amount of available time, but the approach you choose will be dependent on these factors. Decide how much time you can set aside for producing and testing a prototype. Once you've done that, you can decide on the kind of prototype that time allows. If all you've got is a couple of hours, then sit down with the user and run through some hand-drawn sketches, and that might be all you can do. If you've got a few days, then maybe some more high-fidelity wireframes and a handful of different sample users trying them out. Once you start getting into weeks, you can build something a bit more interactive that represents the final product. You can also run multiple rounds of usability testing to validate your approach. That said, even uh, these rich interactive prototypes often start out as a few sketches. They are taken further by the team over time as they iterate and improve things. Although time is the biggest constraint, it's not your only consideration. That brings us on to the second question. What are you using the prototype for? Prototypes can be used in many ways from inspiring management uh, to testing various approaches and establishing a clear direction. In many cases, it will be used for a number of these different purposes, but it's worth being clear about what your number one objective is for the prototype. And that's because it will help you define the kind of prototype you create. For example, if your primary purpose for building a prototype is to excite management and sell them on the approach, then a highly designed prototype will probably be more preferable. 
While if your objective is simply to test the website's information architecture, then you need nothing more than some blank pages and clickable navigation. If you choose to use your prototype as a specification for your project, then it's going to need to be fairly detailed, including providing a strong sense of any interactivity that's required. But it's important to remember that your prototype can change over time. It can start simple and evolve to become more representative of the final deliverable. In fact, that's actually preferable in most cases. When you first start prototyping, a lot of what is being produced is educated guesswork, isn't it? That means it may, uh, makes sense to minimize the effort that you put into it as it will almost certainly change. And that's when you'll use something like pen and paper or a tool like Balsamic, because that's going to be easy to produce. As you become more confident in your direction, based on the testing and discussion with stakeholders, you can start to flesh out your prototype by introducing uh, depth and design elements and better copy and that kind of thing. A prototype should repeatedly pass through these loops of design, testing and iteration. Each round of testing should help you refine your approach and ensure you're heading in the right direction. Through this process of iteration, the detail of your prototype should reflect how confident you are in your chosen direction. The more you work on it, the more finished it will appear. But this process of iteration can be damaging if it's allowed to limit your thinking. The problem with this process of iteration is that it can lead us to see our prototypes as steps along the road to the final solution. But the problem with that is it means that anything we add to the prototype has to be practical. We need to get agreement for it and it will have to be something we can build on our agreed technology stack. There's just no point in prototyping something that isn't practical or will never get approved. But that's a dangerous mindset as it immediately constrains the prototype. We start compromising the user experience because we know the development team will say it's not possible or senior management will reject it. Now, depending on how we're going to use our prototype, that attitude could be a mistake. For a start, we make a lot of assumptions um, when we are deciding some aspect of a prototype and what is practical and what's not. After all, it's possible to build anything. It just depends on how much we're willing to spend. As for stakeholders, we can often be wildly wrong about what they'll accept or reject. We won't know until we try. But most importantly, prototyping within these constraints will set the bar too low from the outset. Stakeholders are never going to get to see how good a great user experience could be. If we, if we show our stakeholders an outstanding experience, they often get excited by it and that motivates them to make it happen. It isn't until we show them what a good experience could be that they see the value of it. Only then would they be willing to make compromises required to make it a reality. We may well win them over. They may well even fund improving the technology stack to support it. It's also surprising how often we make assumptions about what they'll accept um, and what they won't. And we often get that wrong. Somebody who you thought would reject an approach will be your greatest advocate if they can see the potential of it. And that's why it's important to prototype the best experience possible. Then there's the fact that showing an inspirational prototype can shift the conversation. Imagine for a moment that you wanted to design an experience you knew was impossible on the existing technology stack. It would fall to you to convince management that the whole technology stack needs changing and that is going to be an uphill battle. However, if you build a prototype that ignores the technical constraints and management then love it, then it falls to the developers to explain why the technology stack can't support it. The burden of proof switches to them. 
Now, I'm not claiming that if you prototype the perfect user experience, suddenly everyone will buy in and you'll get it approved. There will be compromises, but these compromises will begin from a high starting point and everybody will be clear as to what users and the business will lose when they compromise. If you don't show them what best practice looks like, they'll never know the cost of that old technology stack or the company's out-of-date attitudes. Now, this approach of using prototyping to inspire and excite stakeholders works even better if you include them in the process of creating the prototype, just like we talked about last time when we were discussing wireframes. The worst thing you can do when prototyping is work in isolation. Doing so will not only lead to an inferior solution, it will also undermine many of the benefits that I've listed. Delivering quality digital services requires many specialists working closely together and many more people to agree on that chosen approach. And that makes it almost impossible for a single person to sit down and design a prototype. Who then do we need to involve? Well, the people fall into two categories. Those who will produce the final digital service that you're prototyping and those whose buy-in is required. So let's look at each in turn. You really need as many of your team um, who are going to build the digital service involved in the creation of the prototype as possible. To start with, and fairly obviously, you need a user interface designer in the room. Their expertise in visual hierarchy in particular will be invaluable. You'll also, if you have separate user experience designers, need to have them represented. They will provide a perspective on how the service being prototyped fits into the broader customer journey. Then, of course, you've got your content specialists who need to be involved, who will help with the messaging and the information architecture. Then your user researchers, somebody with a clear understanding of what the user wants um, and what they want to achieve and what questions they have. Finally, don't forget to include developers. They're often left out, but their involvement is crucial. Too often decisions are made at the prototyping stage that have serious ramifications for development further down the line. Beyond your core team, you also want to include uh, representative stakeholders from across the organization. So people like senior management, marketing, product owners, etc. In fact, I would encourage an open door policy when it comes to prototyping. If somebody wants to be involved, let them. That's because if they're involved in the creation of the prototype, as we were talking about last time when we discussed uh, uh, wireframing, they feel a sense of ownership. If they have a sense of ownership, then they're less likely to criticize it, more likely to defend it to others. Admittedly, including a large number of people in prototyping can sound intimidating, but if done right, it can be hugely beneficial. How you approach collaborative prototyping will be dependent on a number of different factors and the number of people involved. However, whatever the circumstances, not everyone needs to be involved equally. Depending on the type of prototype you're producing, some people will be doing more work than others. That said, some form of kickoff prototyping workshop with as many participants as possible is always a good way to begin, just like we were talking about with the wireframing stage. Because remember, effectively, although we were talking about wireframing last time, that is a part of prototyping. It's an opportunity to explore lots of different ideas and move towards an initial direction. Now, one way of doing this that's proving popular at the moment is design sprints. Design sprints were born out of Google Ventures, the venture capital arm of Alphabet Inc. They were initially developed to aid startups to address business challenges they face. So as the sprint website says, 
The Sprint is a five-day process for answering critical business questions through design, prototyping, and testing ideas with customers. In many cases, this translates into a way to define and kick off some form of digital project, although Google Ventures have used the technique beyond even digital. Google have created a highly structured five-day process with activities defined for each day. So a typical design sprint looks something like this. Monday, the group worked with experts from across the organization to identify the ultimate goal and map out the challenge for the week. Tuesday, the team start exploring a variety of solutions through looking at sources of inspiration and sketching various approaches that they could take. Wednesday, the group looks at solutions explored on Tuesday and decides which ones have got the best chance of fulfilling the target for the week. And the team then expands those sketched solutions into storyboards. Thursday, the group turns the storyboards into a working prototype designed to mimic the final approach ready for testing. And Friday, the final prototype is shown to prospective users and its visibility is tested. So the whole process is highly interactive, experimental and user focused. In short, it embraces many of the principles of design thinking to produce something tangible that everyone can agree on. The problem with design sprints is that they're time intensive. Although it may be possible to get the core team in a room for a work week, getting other stakeholders may prove difficult, especially those in senior management. Now, Monday does provide an ability for stakeholders to be involved at a more limited level, but this still leaves the danger of somebody in senior management derailing the process further down the line if they don't feel they got to input into the sprint sufficiently. There are two ways of addressing this problem. The first is that they delegate their authority to someone in the room that they trust. And if they take that approach, then they have to recognize their, they lose their ability to overrule later. The other approach is for them to check in regularly throughout the week to review progress. And that will allow a a course correction if the group is um, going in the wrong direction before that is too much work has been done. Of course, getting five days of uninterrupted time um, for anybody is going to be tough, not just senior management. And that's why sometimes a shorter workshop is preferable, like we were discussing when we talked about uh, wireframes. The key with shorter workshop sessions is to have a clear objective in your mind. It's also important to ensure that you actually create something together rather than just meeting. What that is will be dependent on available time. Um, If you've only got a couple of hours, the best approach is to focus on identifying a prioritized list of tasks and questions that the prototype will need to address. Given more time, you can explore things like visual hierarchy and content for key pages in the prototype. And we talked through, didn't we, a, a range of interactive exercises last time. Whether you're running two hours workshops or a five day sprint, you're going to want to do some research up front. Starting a prototype without really understanding your users will lead to disaster. It will result in a prototype that um, maybe meets the needs of internal stakeholders, but will be not fit for purpose as far as users are concerned. For the final digital service to be effective, you can't allow that to happen. So any prototyping workshop has to be relentlessly focused on user needs. And that means you need to know what those are. And that goes back to the user research we looked at in uh, the very beginning of this course. You'll need to understand what the user's ultimate goals are, what tasks they're looking to complete, what questions they have, how the user is feeling, what pain points they've got and where the prototype fits into the overall journey. 
With that in mind, before you start collaborating on a prototype, it's important to first do that user research. Don't skip it. You want to be going into that meeting, that workshop with at least some form of customer journey map or some other form of visualization of your research to help everybody remain focused on user needs. Hopefully, by the end of the workshop, you'll have a clearer idea of how you're going to meet those needs. But you won't have a fully working prototype. That will be produced following the workshop. The inevitable question at this point is what should you use to produce your prototype? And there seems to be endless debate about which tool is best for prototyping. And in truth, there isn't one. They've all got their pros and cons and each is better suited to different situations. Some argue that you can't beat pen and paper. That's certainly true for a workshop because everybody can draw boxes, but pen and paper lacks interactivity and is low fidelity. Others argue you should prototype in the browser. And that certainly is great for evolving a prototype over time and is much more representative of the final deliverable, but that can be time consuming and you might not know how to code. Then there's a plethora of prototyping tools from tools like Balsamic, which is very low barrier to entry, all the way to something like Marvel or Principle that is highly interactive. Which of these tools you use is up to personal preference, but there are a few questions you might want to bear in mind uh, to guide your decision making. Is um, it going to be regularly updated and developed? Does it have a community creating downloadable libraries of preset objects? Does it let you assemble wireframes without fuss? Could you use it quickly in front of a room of people? Does it um, have a complete sitemap allowing you quickly to jump from page to page? Is it fast and responsive even with larger projects? Can you build a, a working prototype with it in a fraction of the time it would take to build it in HTML? Does it allow you to create complex interactions when you need them? Does it allow you to create realistic forms? Does it make use of templates or library functions of updatable objects that can update your entire prototype in one go? Does it support the visual appearance that you want? And does it allow commenting and feedback from stakeholders? Which of the above matter to you will depend on the project and the type of prototype that you're creating. But the last point on commenting and feedback is particularly worth consideration. And that's because sooner or later, you're going to need to show your prototype to other people and get them involved in the creation. As you will be gathering by now, I'm a huge fan of prototyping, but it is not without its problems. The biggest of which is the fact that it can confuse people who have not been involved in its creation. Those seeing the prototype for the first time are often left wondering what exactly they're looking at. Is it meant to be the final design? What does it include? What is it left out? Is, uh, is it set in stone or open to discussion? What is it? Prototypes are often so basic that stakeholders have trouble imagining the final result will look like. It's not uncommon for a stakeholder to exclaim, why is it black and white? Or is that going to be the final image? This leads many of us to refine our prototypes over time. They start out basic when we're dealing with other digital professionals, such as developers, and then they become a little bit more refined when we carry out some initial testing with users. And finally, we give them a nice coat of paint when showing them to anyone who has sign off. Unfortunately, that kind of approach can backfire sometimes. If a prototype is too refined, it can fall into the uncanny valley. The uncanny valley is a term that was coined to talk about the depiction of animation, computer games and robotics. And over the years, these depictions have become so advanced that they look almost human. But almost can be a problem. 
Sometimes um, something that looks almost human but is not quite can be disturbing. To our eyes, it doesn't feel right. Something's off. And many stakeholders react in a similar way if our prototypes are too designed. It can look like the finished website or app, but it's not actually. Something's not quite right and they start picking at it, trying to work out what. Often the answer is to show them early prototypes, prototypes that are not so refined, prototypes that haven't fallen into the uncanny valley. Of course, the problem we now face is that clients don't understand what they're looking at, but we can overcome that with a bit of education. The danger comes when not everyone who sees the prototype receives that education. So maybe a stakeholder shows it to another colleague or or sends a link out via email, whatever the case you're not, they're not having the prototype explained to them and that can be disastrous. So my preferred solution to this is to create a little video. Whenever someone visits the prototype, they first see a video, often as an overlay. Before they can view the prototype, they have the opportunity to have it explained to them. I start by making it clear that the prototype is not the final site. And the key to success with this approach is to present the prototype as a discussion piece. The first iteration of a prototype should never be what you actually build, but instead a vision of what is possible. Do that and you'll find that um, you'll be shocked at just exactly what you managed to get approved. I emphasize that the aim of the prototype is to gather feedback, feedback from stakeholders but also from real users. I explain in the video which user groups we're focusing on and what content and functionality we've included for those audiences. And finally, I make it clear which audiences we have not addressed and what associated content has been left out. So so anybody viewing the prototype is fully clear about what it is that the prototype is covering. Now, depending on the stage of the project, I also sometimes include a request for feedback. But if you do decide to take this approach, be careful. Never ask people open-ended questions when it comes to feedback. If you do, they're only going to share their personal preferences. Comments like, I don't like the color, are not helpful. Instead, ask structured questions, questions that will help you improve the prototype, but also will help educate the client about where they should be focusing and what they should be thinking about. Questions such as, does the prototype enable your target audience to complete their tasks? If not, which tasks are missing? Does the prototype highlight our calls to action? Does the layout and pages place the emphasis on the most important elements to us as an organization and to the user? Is the tone of voice consistent with our brand? Your final set of questions will depend on how refined the prototype is and the feedback that you need. But you get the idea. Lead stakeholders away from their personal preferences by asking the right questions. You want to keep your video as short as possible, but that doesn't mean that you cannot provide more information for those who are interested. Many of the videos I produce appear alongside associated links to blogs um, outlining the work that we're doing um, and how we're approaching the prototype. It's also useful to include a timeline so stakeholders can see how far you've progressed and what's left to do. If people can see progress, then they're less likely to complain that you've not launched the site yet. Prototypes, videos, blogs and timelines all may seem like a luxury that you can't afford. But if that project has a lot of stakeholders, they are invaluable in speeding up the process. By keeping stakeholders informed and engaged in the project, it's much less likely to get derailed. Um, And that, in my opinion, makes it worth the investment. 
Now, I'm very conscious that this is turning into the longest lesson that I probably will do in this course, but there's good reason for that. Prototyping is the foundation of modern digital design. It's an incredibly valuable tool, so valuable, in fact, that it can be used for a lot more than just improving your user interface. Increasingly, businesses are adopting prototyping to solve all kinds of user experience challenges. I've seen prototyping used to address transition points between social media and a website or a website and a mobile app. I've even seen it used to reimagine offline experiences too. As I said earlier, Disney built a prototype showing how a magic band could improve the experience in its parks. A prototype that led to the executive team greenlighting over a billion dollars worth of renovations. That said, I am conscious that prototyping can feel intimidating. It can involve you changing how you've traditionally worked and persuading stakeholders to get on board and work differently too. So I would encourage you to start small. If all you can do is a bit of wireframing, then do it. You can always expand beyond that over time. Well, I thought it was riveting, Paul. Liar. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> I've written lots of notes. Oh, well, that's something. Well, lots, some. Some is it, notes is, probably... is it like see me, <laughs> pathetic, you know? And... <laughs> so, yeah, C minus. Yeah, exactly. Okay, average. No, I mean... Uh, I think with uh, the main thing I've been uh, getting out of listening to your talk and also talking to, uh, to Aaron was that prototyping, it's fairly obvious why we should do prototyping. Um, it saves money, effort, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the irony is that it's something that often gets kind of, you know, kicked out or, or it's too expensive, but actually it's saving money, which obviously you said 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 over over and over i did want to just quickly play <laughs> over, and over, over and, and over over and over again. but the, i just wanted to sort of slightly play devil's advocate and say well could we not just do a few wireframes and some de design mock-ups doesn't that tick the kind of the visual box and the kind of yeah uh, you know that that's and that's that's you're done so yeah. do you really need to do kind of serious prototype well, it, it depends uh, it's like everything it should be promotion uh, pro uh, proportional to the rest of the project so yeah. you know if you're talking like for example you remember the um the invitation to tender we recently had through um yes. marcus right mm -hmm. and this was like a quarter of a million wasn't it for mm. the project huge amount of money really big project and it would be insanity to jump into that with both feet <laughs> right which is what they're oh, aiming. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it makes a lot more sense when you're spending that amount of money to do a robust prototyping stage so that you, you, you know where you stand. If you're, however, doing a, I don't know, two, three grand little project, although even that is big to some people, it's all relative, mm. isn't it? But, mm. um, you know, then then you do a proportional amount of prototyping alongside that. And that may be just the design and some wireframes. So yeah, absolutely. Mm. I, it's, you're not being devil's advocate. You've been very sensible. I think one of, one of the key things that I, I, I got something new from this ball. I don't know whether it's actually new, but it's sort of something I'd never couched it in these terms before is explain to yourself or the team why you're doing the prototype before you do it. What's the purpose of the prototype? 
Because normally mm. we just go, we've got this idea, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of create something that represents it. But this this idea of well, actually, what we're trying to do is get budget out of the big yeah. boys, or or actually, we really need to test with the users. Actually, probably means you're going to develop something different. So that was a new thing. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you if you talk for long enough, eventually you say <laughs> something useful. So that that's my new philosophy, apparently. But you know what? The, the, and this definitely came out of the the chat with Aaron which obviously we're going to come on to mm. in, in a minute as well is this idea that really 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 all of this boils down to doing user research yeah if you you ask anyone you know all the people I've interviewed so what's the most important thing uh, well actually if, if you're going to do anything just spend an hour talking to some users yeah you know uh, yeah. Uh, so user research is the kind of foundation of everything we're we're doing here i'd say it's even more important than prototyping yes etc cetera, etc cetera. so I, yeah it, it, that was it yes no i would i would agree with that i was about to caveat and say well prototyping could be a a better sales tool to win over you know stakeholders and people like that but actually you can use user research like that as well so mm. yeah i know i would agree you, you can't but the point is you can't do good prototyping without good re- user research no no, no you can't you, you can't so, do anything without good user research basically mm. you're just guessing and you, the trouble is is we we lull ourselves into this false sense of security that oh yeah we know what people are like but uh, yeah. <laughs> you only need to you only ever need to do one or two user research ses- sessions and you quickly realize that you don't mm. have a clue you know, know. it's depressing <laughs> really so anyway let's let's listen to Aaron Walter um uh, because he he's got a really good uh, take on it that I I wanted to come back to so so this is the interview Marcus did with Aaron <laughs> I've got Aaron Walter on the show this week, uh, which is a kind of real treat for us. He's been on the show a few times in the past and dazzled us with his design knowledge. Um, thank you very much for coming on again. How are you? Did I dazzle? Is, is that what I brought? I brought some, some dazzlement? I say that to everyone, every guest every week. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really. No, Bringing I, the razzle-dazzle. I, I wish I could remember what it was, but it's been a few years. Um, I think it you, has. Today we're talking, as, as the listener already knows, we're take, talking more about prototyping, but I think you've been on, the past, uh, on in the past to talk about more kind of visual design, talking about the, the work you did, um, about MailChimp. I think we talked also about the intersection of design and psychology, the way that design makes people, shapes emotion. That, I think that was another topic that we covered. But yeah, um, you and Paul always have interesting guests and interesting conversations. So what a treat to be back. Well, thank you very much. Last time, I think you just started at, at Envision. Are, you, are you, things still going strong there for you? Yeah, I've been there for four and a half years. Um, and these days I lead the content team. Um, and we do a lot of different things. We study how design teams work, uh, what their, their practices are, where they stumble and struggle. And we just see these patterns across lots of different types of companies and markets. It really resolves back to the same types of challenges that, that people face on a regular basis. And then we um, publish what we learn in the form of books. We've published 10 books on designbetter.com. Uh, we, we have a webby nominated podcast called the design better podcast and uh, we publish reports on design maturity and lots of other things too that that's cool i mean so effectively you're kind of like kind of ongoing user research for envision then you're seeing how how people use your tools and then 
applying that back to the the kind of developers that work at Envision. Is that right? Uh, not quite. We do have a, a user research team who do that very particularly, where they're looking at specific okay. products and. Um, you know, ethnographic research and so forth. We're zoomed out like a little bit further. So instead of just looking specifically at how designers use Envision, we are curious, like, how do teams work? Um, how do design teams form and grow? And um, it's not just about the tools they use, but also the practices and, and processes and so forth. As I'm sure you know, I've been involved in running an agency for, for many years, nearly 20 years now. Yeah, and I find that yeah. our processes work great on some projects and, and not on others. We need to kind of have a, and this is kind of relevant to what we're going to talk about, but this kind of, do we need a lean process for some projects and a proper process for others? And I think this has been, this mm. has happened because this year with COVID, um, a lot of the bigger projects yeah. that we would normally be involved with have kind of been postponed or cancelled and we're doing a lot kind of smaller work i mean we're lucky enough that we've managed to mm -hmm. carry on okay i wouldn't say it's been great but it's been okay but it's that mm -hmm. element of can we apply our usual process to much smaller projects has kind of come to the fore and i'm not sure we can and i'm not sure what to do about it i'll let you talk yeah <laughs> yeah i mean um that's it's an interesting challenge and it's such a weird time in history where there's so many things that we have to reevaluate of how we work mm. And um, it's not that we have to totally reinvent the wheel, but it's just like, how might we adapt, scale back certain things? Um, some things need more investment. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about the challenge of research right now, because doing it remotely uh, can be difficult when, if we're visiting companies in person and watching how people work and so forth, I have done a lot of remote research over the years. Uh, used to run a, a research team, and we did a bunch of um, you know interviews about why people bought, uh, why people left a product. Those are mm. called switch interviews. But it's easy to get people on the phone. Um, it doesn't quite give you the same thing as like being in person and watching someone use something. But we can do usability testing remotely. There's a lot we can do remotely. Mm. Um, so it's it's really like bringing this adaptive growth mindset to our work. Absolutely. Anyway, I feel like we're already going off on tangents. Interesting tangents. <laughs> but, I but, love tangents. <laughs> so, so, so do I very much. And I think particularly uh, relevant to how things are changing at the moment and how we're all having to adapt. To, everything seems to be relevant to that um, at the moment, at least for me anyway. Um, Absolutely. But we should talk about uh, the reason why you're on the show today, which is this idea of building prototypes, um, why we should do it, uh, what's the best way of doing it tools we can use to prototype uh, that kind of thing but I, I think where I'd like mm. to start is the why if we're doing all of this kind of user research you know you could argue and I'm just playing devil's advocate but you could argue that we, we've got enough yeah. stuff after we've done the user research we can just dive straight into design can't we we can build things properly so in your opinion why should we be prototyping it's very simple uh, prototyping is a way for us to de-risk our work um, when we are making things for other human beings, we operate on a lot of assumptions. I think this is going to be a good solution to their problem. I think mm -hmm. that they work this way. I think that their mental model works like this. Those are a lot of assumptions, and sometimes assumptions can be right, but if uh, assumptions, uh, by their very nature, they lack uh, the information that makes them really sound and um, uh, they're, they're, they're not super reliable. 
And so when we prototype, we are making small bets on you know, the piece of information that we have right now. We understand this much about our audience and the way they work. Let's prototype a thing and then test that with them and see if our understanding of the problem is close to uh, the way that they think about it. I'm not a big fan of sports analogies and I'm definitely not a big fan of golf, but prototyping and design is a lot like golf. Uh, you start out, uh, if you've ever played golf, you hit the ball as hard as you can. I have, yes. And then the closer you get to the hole, you make small strokes, small tweaks and adjustments. So design is a lot like that. And prototyping is sort of like what you're doing at the tee box where you're hitting it hard as far as you can based mm -hmm. on what you know about the wind, uh, the lay of the land, the club, the tools that you're using, and putting that in front of a person and getting a good understanding of like, is this roughly close? And then we can modify. So the alternative is that we actually build a thing. Mm. And there are lots of people who wanna do that, uh, especially in the software industry, there's this, uh, this, this romance of speed. Let's move really quickly, agile, we're always shipping code, we need to be producing something and shipping code. And uh, let's put it out in the market and see how people react. The problem is you might put it out in the market and people like it's, it's not at all what they want and you've actually built this whole thing and now you gotta tear that down and rebuild it or retool it and that's gonna build in a lot of biases in your process because if you've invested time, our bias is to not you know, burn the thing down and we wanna make small tweaks. But with a prototype, because it's not actually the product, it gives us a good understanding of how they work. Mm. Uh, but if it's not right at all, we can burn that down. It's not that big of a deal. We don't have the significant investment. So prototyping is all about de-risking. Yeah, but one of, one of our designers has always described prototyping as his cardboard and sellotape websites. Because that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's just, it doesn't matter if it's wrong. We can just kind of do it again straight away. And mm -hmm. one of, final point on that is I remember Andy Budd writing a few years ago now about this idea that a lot of clients that they were working with had kind of got fatigue over the whole process of post-it fatigue. That's what he called it. Um, yep. where the, uh, so much, so many workshops, so so much kind of interviewing of people and that his kind of, um, conclusion from all that which rang quite true with me was do more prototyping build things mm -hmm. that people you know build, build things kind of in they don't have to be particularly beautiful or anything but get people involved in that process even at the client level then that's going to help you more than than doing kind of more in-depth user research in his opinion and that's something that i've tried to do more of over the years so yeah i, I was just playing devil's advocate earlier i love prototyping i think it really yeah. helps us yeah, and what Andy's saying I think is interesting because uh, basically what he's getting at is abstractions can be problematic. Yep. Post-it notes and wireframes and all these other um, artifacts and tools of, of our world and in, in the design world, uh, they're abstractions that we can kind of extrapolate down to it's going to be like this. Just like an architect can kind of like uh, sketch a thing out on a piece of paper and understand like what it would be like to move through that space. Hmm. Most human beings cannot do that. Very few actually can. And the same is true uh, with a prototype versus you know, uh, some sort of a workshop uh, or lots of post-it notes and so forth. Like we could talk about it, but it's an abstraction. Hmm. And actually seeing it gives us something more uh, closer to the reality that we're trying to build 
that we can react to and understand more clearly. I'm going to move on to the, the, the kind of general theme of this entire series is the, the idea of doing lean UX or doing UX maybe on a budget or maybe not even on a budget, but if you've got a, you your time is limited. Um, bearing that in mind, I mean, do you have different approaches to prototype development? I was kind of referring to this earlier, I guess, but do you have a kind of full version and a lean version or a more throwaway version than you would on another project? I guess, do you approach prototyping in different ways? Uh, I think I think people can approach it in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're talking about maybe the the um, the simplest approach uh, would be that we're building something, let's say in Sketch, very quickly. Um, let's say it's a mobile app, and mm-hmm. we can kind of piece together very quickly with maybe existing styles or a design system that we have on hand, and you know you can download kits and stuff like that everywhere. Um, and then basically stringing that together with hotspots and you can create simple animations. I, I work at Envision, so of course, you know, this is, this is what our products uh, do. It's yes. like make it really easy to string that stuff together. And then you can deploy it to a real device like a phone and use that and get a feel for it. Mm. Um, that's, a, that's a really important point I just want to highlight for the listeners that if uh, whatever platform you're gonna deploy this product on, it's best to deploy your, your, your prototype to that platform so you get the real sense of like, okay, this is gonna be on a phone, so instead of I'm in a browser window with a picture of a phone and the prototype in there, mm-hmm. you know, touch it with your thumb. Like, can your thumb reach up there if it's if, you know, on your phone? Like, is everything ergonomic? There are a lot of factors uh, that won't be understood if, it's, if we're not using it natively on the device. But, so we could string something together very quickly. Um, someone who's any designer worth their salt could probably produce uh, a prototype in an hour or two um, with some loud music and a cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> but the, the the next step would be, uh, you know, doing some sort of a sprint, and that could be a three day sprint, five day sprint. I know there are some companies that do one day sprints, and that's basically just research. But three days, you can still do some discovery. Um, and build a thing and test. Uh, the, the typical uh, life cycle of a sprint, you know, a, a full sprint is, is like five days. Yeah. And what's great about that is, is every sprint concludes with something you can test with a customer. And um, in a sprint, you've got cross-disciplinary perspectives. So you might you know, have not just designers, but developers or executives or you know, people in business or product or even marketing that could be involved in some capacity uh, within the week to give you perspective. And then you have uh, research that's done as part of that very quickly. All of that discovery culminates into some early ideas and then a pro- prototype that gets put in front of uh, users on that final day. Um, and that's, that's even better. It's you know, not a huge investment, it's five days. It is multiple people, so if you calculate it in person hours, it's more person hours than the, the two hours of loud music and a coffee and with one designer. <laughs> yes. But um, it, it, you're, you're gonna get something that's a lot closer. So to go back to my analogy of golf, you're gonna swing at that ball a little harder, well, probably a lot harder, and get it a lot closer to the hole than with that, that other lighter approach where you, know, you get 100 yards or whatever. So uh, yeah, the great thing about that is the prototype that you have on the other end, um, it's informed by research and then it's, um, validated or invalidated uh, with real customers using that. 
Okay, I guess my next question is kind of connected to that. So if your time or budget is limited, what would you say are the most important things to to concentrate on? How do we get closest to the whole, to continue the analogy? Yeah, I I think that um, the way that you get farthest, fastest is by spending some time on some research. Mm. Um, And that doesn't have to be super time consuming. It's very easy in almost all circumstances. And I know that there are some people at large financial institutions who say, or, you know, healthcare institutions, we don't have access to the customer, we can't get access to the data, et cetera. There are ways to do that. There are creative ways. Um, I recommend for those who aren't familiar with research and need some creative guidance, um, Erica Hall's book, Just Enough Research. Okay. That'll give you some guidance and it's super scrappy. So that's that's a great book. Um, so spending some time doing a bit of research what? before you prototype. And that could even be like, you spend the afternoon on the phone with three or four customers. That's great. That's gonna give you a lot more information uh, and help you focus your prototype versus like if you just started designing a thing on a bunch of hunches mm-hmm. um, or a lot of guesses. As I like to say, guesses make messes. Um, you, you make a lot of guesses about the way that people think and the way they, you know, their behavior and their motivations. And then you make a thing and uh, it could be so far off. And so it, it seems like you're saving time by not doing the research and just prototyping, but you're gonna pay for it on the other side because uh, in all likelihood, you've probably missed the mark. Uh, you, you hit the ball, but in the wrong direction, right? And that does not get you closer. Like if you just nailed that ball really hard, but it was towards the other hole, like <laughs> you're not winning the game. This is so going to go a little bit of miles research. and miles, isn't it? The, the, the analogy is I know, so good. I I know, we're just going to stretch this before. metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a very easy question, and I ask of every interviewee uh, that we've had. You know, what, if you're going to do one thing, what what should you do to kind of win the quickest, as it were? And it's a it's a recurring theme: do better research, do more research. If you can do one thing, yeah, you know, understand um, why you're doing what you're doing, and yeah, it makes total sense. Anyway, I'm, I'm now going to move on to give you a chance for a bit of blatant advertising. Um, yeah. So what's your preferred method of sharing prototype ideas with your clients or with your colleagues? Uh, do you have any favorite tools? Of course, I have yeah. favorite tools. Uh, of course, I mean, we, we use our own products at Envision. We're a totally distributed company and we're a little meta. We design products to help designers design products. Mm-hmm. And so we understand that process very, very well. Um, and I, the reason why I joined Envision was that I, I was a customer when I, I was leading the design team at MailChimp and mm-hmm. we would prototype um, a lot in Envision. We used to prototype with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. I'd make these JSON data files that would feed in. It took a lot of time and effort to get something that was like, functionally relatively high fidelity, but um, it was also like, it, di- it just didn't look like a real product. Mm. Um, and then we started prototyping in Envision and we were moving faster. And the way that I describe using our products is that it's a faster way to certainty of like getting closer to that hole or getting closer to understanding uh, what we're trying to create. Um, so, and the nice thing is you can prototype and then you can deploy that to um, different devices, you can share that with clients, with colleagues, and they can offer feedback directly and you can revise. So 
Um, the communication stuff, the, the team piece, like being able to produce a prototype, awesome. There are a lot of tools to do that and a lot of different methods you could have used to, to do that. Uh, but the communication piece is so key. Uh, product design is really not just the domain of designers. It's the domain of engineers, product people, lawyers, uh, you know, support people, marketing people. It's, it's so many people have mm-hmm. inputs and constraints a lot of stakeholders. So the communication piece is really key. That's great. It reminds me of uh, 12 years ago, we created a, an app that was basically for doing exactly that. Get sign off? Get sign off. Exactly. You remember it. Wow. I remember. Yeah, it didn't work. We spent far too much time on not getting it out of the door, interestingly. Uh, maybe we should have done more prototyping of our idea. But anyway, such is life. We had too much client work at the time. That was the problem. We couldn't mm. focus on the thing we needed to focus on. Anyway, yet another yeah. tangent. I'd like to finish with basically, uh, if you have one piece of advice for anyone who's going to put together a prototype, what would that one piece of advice be? It's pretty simple. Um, The great thing about prototyping is that um, it offers us speed in our process, accelerates our process to learn. Um, Speed without trajectory, pointing ourselves in the right direction, is entropy. That is energy that is lost Mm -hmm. in the system. And so we need to be mindful of speed and our colleagues in engineering and product are gonna be all about speed but we need to remind everyone that trajectory is equally important. Speed without trajectory is entropy. And so the way that we get trajectory is with a bit of research. Um, and it doesn't have to be super time consuming, but it's the number one thing that people think, eh, I don't need to do this. It's not all that important. And it just leads to so much chaos if we don't do that. Okay. Well, as ever, super wise words. Thank you very much for your time, Aaron. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And great to see you. Yeah, so I loved his analogy. He's great, isn't he? I, he is, yeah. <laughs> I, I lo- wonderful. I love his analogies. I loved, I loved the comparison to betting, that it's, a, it's like making a bet, that you bet yeah. small, you know, on a prototype <laughs> rather than big. And then, of course, the golfing analogy I know, why I never heard that one before? I it's know. Brilliant. That is that is just, I'm going to endlessly reuse that and claim it was my idea. <laughs> but the fact it works on so many different levels. Yeah, the yeah. idea of you, you hit a really big hit, but it's in the wrong direction and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, ah. the whole velocity, you know, <laughs> yeah. speed without trajectory is uh, em- entropy. entropy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a bit, that, that was a bit intelligent for me, that bit. He's a wise person. Yeah. Definitely. It was, it was very pleasant to interview him. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to get someone as entertaining next time round. Who knows? Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can't even remember what we're doing next time. Oh, it's design, isn't it? As I remember. I think. Is I it? Think, I don't know. Yeah. How so, exciting. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love, I, I think why the, the golf analogy really resonated with me was that, that kind of idea. Well, if you just build the product, you're effectively trying to get a hole in one. That's what you're trying to do, isn't it? Mm. You yeah, know, or at least get it on the green in one. You know, that, it's yeah. like, but no, that no, that doesn't happen on a normal golf hole. No, so you, no. you yeah, you just, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's wonderful. Works so well. And why didn't I think of it? And I, I like <laughs> as well the thing that he was talking about um, about the problem of uh, with abstraction that that 
you know, a, a, a prototype makes things very tangible. Um, and I feel like that about specifications that they they often feel like an abstraction where people are having to interpret them, while yeah. while a prototype is so much more descriptive of it. So yeah, yeah. One, one of the notes I didn't mention after your your about about your call was was this idea is that if you build something, people don't have to use their imaginations. Yeah. And, well, that's kind of really important. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then, don't describe it. Show yeah. them what it is, or at and least. Like, a, a, as 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 economical a representat- representation of it as is yeah. relevant, as we discussed earlier. And and like Aaron said, you know, not everybody can picture things in the way that you you know we've trained ourselves by the nature of what we do. Even if you say something as simple as you know, if I say a carousel, right, mm. you know what a carousel looks like. You know, I, I know what a carousel looks like. But a lot of people won't or or they will get confused between a hero image and a carousel. And, you know, mm. uh, it goes, yeah, goes well, on. Exactly. Uh, what's a Any- hero image? But yeah, anyway, move on. <laughs> right. Anyway, just as a little little aside, let's have a, a chat with um, Leon about uh, wireframing, um, going back to last um, month's topic, um, and how it can tie nicely with Agile. <laughs> Hi, Leon. Good to have you back on the show. How you been? Good, good. Good to be back. Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for sending through that, that article on wireframes and agile user stories. I thought that it was a really, really good article. Um, so why did you pick that one in particular for, for us to talk about today? Yeah, you know, this article was one of the very first I wrote when I started, uh, and it was based on on real life experience. Um, it's actually turned out to be one of our most popular articles. So, <laughs> right. uh, um, for probably because a lot of people are wondering how how to do this and yeah, with agile user stories. Um, but the the main reason I picked this is it's kind of in keeping with this theme, I guess. Uh, it relates a little bit to the uh, article that Mike talked about last time with wire flows. Mm. Um, and just this idea that wireframes are not just one thing and that they're, they're actually very versatile. Um, mm. so, uh, and they can coexist with other types of, of documents and artifacts. So uh, I just uh, kind of wanted to talk about it because I thought it, it was another non-obvious way of wireframing, kind of like what Mike talked about last time. For, before we kind of dive into wireframes and their relationship with user stories, uh, could you just kind of briefly explain what an agile user story is for those that maybe don't work in that way? Sure. So there's the whole agile slash lean development methodology, which is basically rooted in, in this idea that things are changing all, all of the time, uh, that software projects are a mess. And if you try to come up with a plan things out, you know, six months ahead of time, you're not going to uh, take into account that things are going to change all the way. So instead of designing everything the way it should be up front, you kind of uh, break the features down into smaller pieces uh, and it allows you to kind of change course and change priorities along the way. It's a simplified version of, uh, or it's a, a modern alternative to a big functional specification document. Um, and it kind of, it's supposed to be more from a user's point of view where it focuses mm-hmm. on what the user needs are and not just kind of what the business requirements or, or, or thinking of it, of it in terms of features. So it's very popular in, uh, in this whole agile development methodology is 
used by a lot of software companies these days um, with uh, mixed results. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, effectively, a user story is going to be a description of a user trying to do a particular thing within, uh, you know, within a, uh, a, an application or something like that. So how do wireframes kind of work in that context? Well, like I said, the, the whole idea with Agile is that it's, it's flexible, it's, it's adaptable. Um, you, you kind of anticipate or expect that things are going to change. And, and wireframes, because they're so quick to create and they're kind of rough, they're, they're kind of go hand in hand with that. You look at a wireframe and it's, it kind of says, hey, I'm, I'm ready to be changed. This is something that this is just a proposal. Um, so you can design something. And then if things change and you say you have these two-week sprints or something where you do chunks of work in two week uh, pieces, then you can change uh, a wireframe easily so that when you start your next batch of work two weeks from now, it can be a, a different wireframe. So you're not investing a lot of time up front into the design. Um, mm -hmm. You're kind of keeping things loose and, uh, and rough so that you can, you can change it when things uh, inevitably uh, need to be changed. Um, and, and you don't have to, you know, do all of the details. Um, and, um, they also, um, I think they kind of force you to design for, for the real world. So if, if yeah. the person writing the user story is also doing the wireframe, then they have to think about, okay, this is something that's actually going to be built uh, and designed and not just kind of designed in, in theory. Yeah, no, uh, I, it's so true because sometimes the kind of specifications we write uh, are a, hard to picture and b, you know, aren't particularly realistic in in many ways. And wireframing it really makes a difference there. So obviously, we were talking about wireframing in in um, last month's podcast. But what I'm interested in is whether there are differences between the the normal wireframing that you do and the wireframing for user stories is is it a different approach it is a little bit you know i think one of the other recurring themes is that wireframing is not just one thing and also the way you mm -hmm. wireframe is not just one thing so um you also have to design uh, or wireframe in a more kind of modular way where you're thinking about pieces of functionality um kind of separately and thinking about okay maybe i have a feature but i'm going to change part of it or something like that. So uh, you might have to anticipate also how much work it's going to take. And so if the developer says that this part of the feature isn't going to fit into their time frame, you might have to adapt it. So you have to um, think, well, I would say, think modularly with your design. Mm. Um, and then also, um, because user stories, you know, have text in them, you can think about, well, what parts of the design should be in the wireframe and what parts are better described in text. So if you have some people use more detailed agile user stories where they have like an acceptance criteria, which is kind of a checklist for the technical part of things, you can just write that in the text of your user story and you can keep your wireframe very high level. So it's not the case where you're designing something very detailed that's going to be sent off to some, um, uh, some offshore team or something. You can kind of keep your wireframes a little bit more loose and uh, do more of the description for what's supposed to happen um, in the user story and maybe in place of, say, using annotations or something, you would do that inside mm. the user story itself. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a really good way of making use of wireframes and also improving kind of agile user stories generally. Um, 
it's a great, great article and you can read it by going to boag.world forward slash wireframe dash stories. And I'll also put a link in the, the show notes as well. But, but before you go, Leon, is there any kind of last tips of using wireframes and user stories that you want to impart upon us? Yeah, I, I think that, that maybe culturally or in a business process, um, it might be a new thing. Um, maybe mm-hmm. people, either the, the designers or the developers aren't used to working this way. So I would say if, if it doesn't really work out at first, don't, don't give up. You know, think about <laughs> the, say, the individual developer who's going to be receiving that story and, and try to understand how they prefer to receive information. You know, do they mm-hmm. like to have every single detail totally spec'd out or do they like just having a rough picture and then, you know, they feel like they can be the designer and fill in the details. So, you know, I would say keep at it uh, if it doesn't work perfectly at first um, and just try to try to refine it, but try to stick, stick with it. But I, because I think just having some kind of visual for some people to look at uh, is, is really helpful to get people on the same page. So just, you know, give it a shot for a while uh, and, and try to refine it and, and keep at it. I think that's good advice for pretty much any technique. It always takes <laughs> right. time to get it right, doesn't it, really? Okay, thank you so much, Leon. Great to talk to you as always. And um, yeah, until next time. That sounds great. Thank you. So, yeah, I, I always love our, my little chats with the guys at um, Bow Summit. They've always got something really tangible to talk about, and this was no exception. Um, user stories are uh, an increasingly popular tool, and it makes you know huge sense to tie them with wireframes. So that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for sharing that, Leon. Okay, so next time, as I said earlier, um, we're going to look at hassle-free design approval and uh, trying to get design sign off and the process for doing that and how we can do that in a lean way that actually is much more predictable. Um, We're Mm going to be talking about that on the 5th of November. So make sure you uh, join us then. But obviously we have to end with a joke from Marcus. So what have you got for us, Marcus? Well, this is from Bruce Lawson. So if you don't like it, I guess you've got no taste. Yeah, not not you particularly, Paul, but anyone. Well, I know. I mean, Bruce, no one can argue with Bruce's jokes. Saint Bruce. Here we go. Uh, A drummer friend of mine is thinking of coming out of retirement. He hasn't played for years, and I'm worried that there could be some bad repercussions. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You see, when he tells them they're funny... Oh, heart. Nice, my heart. (laughs) Well, there you go, see, Marcus. Yeah, I did set myself up for that. Yeah, you did. (laughs) And on that note, um, we will talk to you again in one month. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Oh, my God.